the Haggadah is is really the handbook or the guide for everything that goes on at the Passover Seder, which is really one of the highlights of what Pesach is all about. The Seder in Chutzlar, it's outside of the land of Israel. The, the, there are two days of Yantiv, there are two days in which the holiday of Passover is observed with the Seder. In Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, there's only one, one night of the Seder. And the thing which is so interesting about the Seder, which we'll try to explain this evening, is that the Seder seems to have retained um, a place in some of the most distant, distant places and people from Judaism. People sometimes, other than the phenomena of the Jew that relates to Judaism three days a year, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and very often Jews that don't even have a relationship to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur have a relationship to the Seder. The Seder has remained a tradition that is not necessarily confined in its observance necessarily to observant Judaism. But it's a time where people get together and the Seder is celebrated. And really the question that comes up is how come the Seder more, more so than many other traditions and customs in Judaism has been held on to even by those that don't necessarily hold on to other parts of Judaism? And within our discussions about the Haggadah this evening, I think it's going to become clear why that is and what we're supposed to learn from it. But let's begin, let's begin by noting the fact that that night of Passover, in which we celebrate our freedom from Egypt, which was the night that we left Egypt, the first night of Passover uh, parallels the night that we left Egypt, that night is referred to as a very glorious night. It's a night of our freedom. We celebrate our freedom. The four cups of wine that are in the, in the Seder of the night, in the order of the night, are to celebrate the four languages of freedom. We detail the entire history of how we were slaves in Egypt and how God took us out, how from very meager beginnings and from coming from a father of Abraham who was an idol worshiper, we landed up at such a glorious spot at Sinai and so on and so forth. The night is a very glorious night. Uh, we know that there is a custom in many circles that on the night of the Seder we wear a kittel. We, uh, um, they wear the, the, the white, quote-unquote, what is referred to as shrouds. And there's a difference of opinion exactly why we wear it. According to one opinion, we wear it because even though we're celebrating freedom, we're also remembering at the same time the fact that uh, we are not in a total state of ecstasy and joy because we're outside of the land of Israel. And therefore, this being the close that reminds us of death, this saddens us. In fact, in our literature, we know that the night that uh, Passover comes out, we know that that's the night that Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, also comes out on the same night. So, for instance, this year, I believe the Seder night is, the first Seder night is, is a Friday night, so Tisha B'Av is on Shabbos, which is pushed off, obviously, to Sunday because it's Shabbos, 
But there's that connection. Yes, we are free. Yes, we were freed, but we still don't have the real state of freedom because of the events of history. And we're hoping for that freedom. So while it's a celebration of freedom, at the same time, it's also, it also reminds us of the fact that we're certainly missing many of the dimensions of freedom because we are not in the land of Israel today. This is one reason for the kittel, for the, for the white garments that are worn. Another reason for the white garments that are worn at the Seder is quite the opposite. The Maralmi Prague, who was a great Jewish philosopher, says that the reason for the kittel was because the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, was distinguished was distinguished in Big Day Lovin in his white garments, and every every individual at the Seder is performing as a high priest. And therefore he wears the garments of white. And there is that custom of wearing white. So the night of the Seder is a very exalted night. Uh, our Kabbalistic literature talks about the fact that the, the Seder night, we are all dining with God. Because God took us out on this night. It was the beginning of a relationship with God. And that everything that takes place on this night is dining with God, so to speak. Mishulchen Gavoa Kazachi, we're eating off, so to speak, a spiritual table on this night. So the terms for the Seder night are very exalted. We invite Elijah in. Uh, we, could, we pour a cup of wine in our belief of the coming of Mashiach. We really, the Jew on the night of the Seder is really at his glory. And the thing which seems to be very, very peculiar is that for all of the glory that the night has and the exalted place that the night has, there was no better term for the night of the Seder except to call it the Seder. Now, what does the Seder mean? Technically speaking, in English, the word Seder, all it means is order. Now, for anybody here that has any kind of talent at all in literature, in poetry, in any form of writing, if you want to describe something in exalted terms, in beautiful terms, to say, you know what we're going to do this evening? The order. It seems to be very anticlimactic to refer to such a spiritual, inspirational night celebrating freedom and to refer to it as the order. And it sounds like a club or something. Why is the night called the Seder? Of all, of all, of all things... Why is it called the Seder? Now, this point is accentuated. It's not merely that it's called the Seder. We know if we look on page 4, if we look on page 4 in our Haggadahs, we know that we have a listing of everything that goes on in the Seder. Kadesh is first, which is the reciting of the Kiddush, or Achatz, Karpas, Yachatz. We have this whole thing. And one of the customs at the Seder is that before the Seder starts, and we usually turn to children to do this, that there's a melody in which we sing the entire order of the Seder. There's an entire song. And that's, again, an introduction to the night, which seems to point to the concept of order that the night has. And obviously the question that I'm asking is, why are we getting so precision-like? And why are we concentrating on the fact that there's an order to it 
seemingly the most significant parts are the concepts, the feelings, the celebration, and the order seems to just be a way of getting through it. It's the, the signs at the street corners of how from where t- to go from here to here. It's instructional in nature, but that's not the essence of what the night is all about. <clears throat> so there's really there's, there's a whole lot to talk about. There's a whole lot to talk about, but I think the, the important thing the important thing, and maybe the best way to do this, is to point to the very first two things on page four. What are the first two things that we do at the Seder? We have Kadesh and then Urachatz. Okay? Kadesh is the, the, the recital of the Kiddush. Every Friday night, ushering in and sanctifying the day of Shabbos, that is done through the recital of the Kiddush in which we speak of how God makes that day special and how he sanctified the day and how I accept upon myself the holiness of that day. That's Kiddush. We do it every Friday night in ushering in the Shabbos. It's a biblical command to usher in the Shabbos. The Kiddush on the wine in particular is rabbinic in nature, but the Kiddush itself is biblical. And on Yantov as well, all of our holidays also have Kiddush. And in that sense, Passover is a holiday. So it's a holiday like any other holiday, so it has Kiddush. But one thing is very odd, and one thing is very peculiar, because right after the Kadesh, we have Urachatz. We have the washing of the hands. Now, this washing of the hands is not the classical washing of the hands that we have every time that we make Kiddush and then wash our hands. Every time that we make Kiddush and then wash our hands, it's we're washing our hands for the specific purpose of eating bread. And there's that order, Kiddush first and then washing your hands to eat bread. According to many halachic uh, opinions, one could wash their hands, make al-natilos yadayim, and then proceed to Kiddush. And in some places it's done that way. You wash your hands, you sit down, you hear Kiddush, and then you immediately break on the bread. But this urachatz has nothing to do with, with eating. It really doesn't have anything to do with eating, because this is a washing of the hands that does not have al-natilos yadayim attached to it. Okay? And under normal circumstances, we don't we don't wash in, in, this, in this kind of uh, situation. But on the night, on the night of Passover, we have this washing. So there are two questions that we have to ask ourselves. What is the meaning of this washing on the night of Passover? It's not for bread. It's not for bread. Okay, so what, what is the context of this washing? And whatever the context of this washing is, it has something to do with getting ourselves ready for the Seder night. So seemingly it should be in the reverse order. We should wash our hands because it has nothing to do with eating. It has to do with something that's unique to the Seder. So we should wash our hands and then make Kiddush. And then make Kiddush. But we see right away at the very beginning that that's not the way it goes. We come to the table. We finally get everybody seated at the table. Everybody finds their place and their pillow and everything else. And we finally make Kiddush. And after Kiddush, then we go wash. And that's something which is very peculiar. What is that supposed to be? So, uh, essentially, the, uh, what we're being taught, even in this particular order of Kadesh first and then Urachatz, we're being taught a very interesting concept about what the Seder night is all about.
And that is that we pointed out, okay, we pointed out that um, in, in one of the portion of the week classes a while back, we pointed out that the Jew right before he left Egypt had fallen into 49 levels of impurity. Whatever that's supposed to mean. How you measure those levels is not completely clear either, but he fell into 49 levels of impurity. And were the Jew to stay in Egypt any longer, he would have fallen into the 50th. And technically speaking, there wouldn't have been a logical way of returning from that 50th level unless God would have recreated the person. Nevertheless, we're told that when the Jew did leave Egypt on that night, he left Egypt singing holy song. In fact, when the prophet refers to the celebrations when Mashiach will come, it says in the prophet that the Jew will sing a song when Mashiach comes that will be similar to the holiness of the song that they sang when they left Egypt. So we have a dramatic, we have a dramatic difference between where the Jew's at a moment before he leaves Egypt and as he's leaving Egypt. He's in 49 levels of impurity. Okay, he's in 49 levels of impurity, and then when God reveals himself and says, okay, I'm taking you out, all of a sudden they become maestros. All of a sudden they become musicians of a high form of holy song. How does one understand this? What is this all about? Well, our commentaries, and in particular the Zohar HaKadosh, the, 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 uh, the first who is recognized as the father in, in terms of authorship, of our Kabbalistic literature writes that there are two basic conducts that God employs in this world. There are two basic conducts. One conduct is referred to as Isaruta Dilayla. The other conduct is referred to as Isaruta Dilatata. Now let me explain what each one is. Isaruta Dilayla is two Aramaic words. Isaruta means an awakening, an arousal. Dela'ela that comes from above. Isaruta Dilatata also means an awakening or an arousal. Dilatata that comes from here. What are these two things? What these two things are as, a, are, as fo- are, are as follows. There are times in a person's life where a person engages in a, and involves himself in a way that he is trying to generate a sincere connection and a sincere interest to, to God. But the initiation happens down here, I'll try to be better, I'll do this, I won't do this, where a person is, is motivated and pushes themselves to be different and hopefully to be better in that difference. But the isaruta, the, the, cha- the initiation of the change, begins with us, I sit down, I look at my life, I look at things, it's not the way it should be, I, and I realize that it's not the way it should be, I want it to change, and I, I'm really, I, I am the initiator of this awakening. Now, when God sees this is Aruta Dilatata, this awakening that initiates itself down here, God responds to it, and God says that if man is making this effort, I will reciprocate and help him and add to his to his, his movement, and I will inspire him to move ahead. That's one conduct. But there is another conduct which goes the reverse, where man is not doing anything, a man is not looking for anything, a man isn't even thinking about anything. 
And God says that this is no good. If man is just going to be left up to his own devices, he's never going to get to where he should go. Therefore, what I will do is I will, unannounced, uninvited, I will bring to him, as a gift from heaven, an awakening to examine something, even though he wasn't even looking in that direction. He'll meet a person that will make him interested. He'll pick up a book that was interesting. He'll have an experience that's interesting and that gives him an awakening. But the initiation of the, of the process begins in heaven. It's Aruta Deliela. The process beginning in heaven. And, obviously, there is a tremendous obligation that when a person experiences that kind of a, uh, that kind of a thing, that what is expected of him is, okay, you see that God is saying to you, you can't. And you see, you see that God is not giving up on you and letting you, so to speak, just drift, drift away. Respond to it and try to meet it. <laughs> so both of them are the meeting. The question is only who initiates it. There are times that God says, I will not initiate it. Man must initiate and I will respond. There are other times where God initiates and hopes that man will respond. By and large, God waits for man. But there are particular unique periods of time, either because the time is unique or because the condition of the person's life is unique, where God begins the process. It's Aruta Deliela, the awakening which is initiated in heaven. Well, one example of Isaruta Deliela, an initiation that begins in heaven, one of the prime examples of that concept is our going out of Egypt. The Jew, when he left Egypt on the night of the 15th of Nisan, which parallels the Seder night, was a night in which God said, I'm going to treat the Jew to a spiritual revelation and to a spiritual experience that will inspire him no end, completely out of context to where he's at in terms of his 49 levels of impurity. Because I want him to believe and I want him to become awake with the knowledge that there's spirituality within himself that's available for development. So I will initiate the process. And being that in reality, no matter how far a Jew falls, there is always an element that remains untouched by the conditions of life. So when that, there is that awakening from heaven, it, 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 uh, it lights that part of the person that was untouched by the conditions outside. And that's really what the phenomena of the night of our leaving Egypt is all about. It's the initiation that comes from heaven that sparks the, un the untouched spirituality of man in spite of whatever he's done and begins a process that can even unfold itself in holy song. That's what Isaruta Deliel is. Now, if one would want to ask, what kind of a category of a conduct does that fall into? Obviously, the best word for it is chesed. It's a tremendous act of loving kindness on God's part. Why? Chesed is uh, an act of goodness that is done from one person to another person, where the person that's the recipient can't say, I earned it, I deserved it, you owe it to me, but the, it's, 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 it's out of the goodness of the giver. The giver wants to give this, and it's an act of chesed. So the night that we left Egypt was a night of chesed on God's part towards us. Now, being that this is so, being that this is so, now we understand very well why the night of Pesach, the order is Kadesh or Echatz.
What do I mean by that? Kadesh is sanctification. Rechatz is to wash away that which one doesn't want. So in the normal circumstances, what do we do? What's our mental set? First, get rid of the garbage, and after you get rid of the garbage, then you're ready for an experience of Kadesh. Then you're ready for an experience of sanctification. But the night that we left Egypt, it didn't go wash away the junk, and then I'll give you an experience of sanctification. On the night that we left Mitzrayim, we began with Kadesh. We began with an experience of sanctification that then propelled us, after we left Egypt, to clean up our act to see, to, be, to live up to it. So therefore, since the night of, of uh, when we left Egypt was the night that worked with the apparatus of what? Of Kadesh and then Urchatz, sanctification, and the sanctification will give me then the strength to wash away that which is negative. So in the Seder night, it also works that way. In the Seder night, we have that Kadesh first and then Urchatz, as if to say that we recognize the goodness that was done with us on this night, that God gave us an experience of holiness before our own initiating the process. He gave it to us as an initiation that would help us to then make the urachats, then to make the washing away. Now, this is a very interesting thing, because... Before we learned, before we learned this, what we just learned this moment, you look at the history of the Jew leaving Egypt. Here he's in 49 levels of impurity. God reveals himself. God says, it's time to leave. I'm taking you out. And all of a sudden they start to sing holy song. A person can scratch their heads and say, there's no order to this. There's no rhyme and reason to this. It seems to be totally haphazard. There's no scheme to this. The Jew is blowing hot and cold. One minute he's in 49 levels of impurity, and the next minute he's singing holy song. Before what I just, before the explanation that I just gave of what, of the mechanism that's going on, a person looking at what's going on can say to himself, there's no real rhyme or reason to this. It worked out that way. The Jew is in 49 levels of impurity, and all of a sudden God reveals himself, poof, all of a, all of a sudden he becomes a holy composer. It's very erratic. The point that we're trying to make at the, at the night of the Seder is that there is nothing in our spirituality that doesn't have a logic to it, that doesn't have an order to it. it, doesn't, it there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time and a place for everything that happens in our lives. In other words, the person that's not looking for anything, and all of a sudden is confronted with something that they didn't ask for, and so on and so forth, the natural tendency of the person is, I don't know what's with me, I don't know what got over me, uh, some, some ridiculous thing just came into my head, and dismiss it. No. What we're being taught at the Seder night is that everything has an order. There's a scheme, there's a process of growth. There are various ways that the process works, but everything has an order. Now, understanding this, understanding this, there's something here which is very beautiful. What's beautiful about this? What's beautiful about this is that man could get the feeling, man could get the feeling that if he gets trapped and if he becomes a captive of his own choices or the environment or of his background or anything else, then he's stuck. 
he stuck and Gamarnu finished. What we're learning is that the whole the whole um, possibility, the whole availability of a person reaching God has an order. It has a system, it's thought through. And the different events that reach a person in his life can be opportunities for the person to make the step from one place to the other place. In other words, the notion that I was born into a particular situation and the particular situation that I was born into locks me in. And for me, there's no path. For me, there's no way. What we're saying is it's not true. There's an order. There's a process. Spirituality is not something that you just take a leap to the stars. You try to grab randomly whatever you can get, wherever you can hop it. No, there's an order to it. And our lives have those orders if we're sensitive to them. In our lives, there are many things that happen that if we don't dismiss them or don't deafen their message, there are orders to the different things that happen in our lives. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're negative things and uncomfortable things. But there is an order that God is working with us to help us or to give us the opportunities for growth. Now... Now, let's, let's, um, let's just complete this idea before we go further in the pages of the Haggadah. Let's just complete this idea a little bit more. Let's complete the idea a little bit more. When we say that holiness comes, is initiated from heaven, that's one way, and then it hopefully inspires us to make our personal change, our personal awaking, what, other than the night of Pesach, there is one other, there is one other primary event in the Jewish calendar which parallels this, and that is Shabbos. In other words, if a person would want to point, other than the night of the Seder, is there another phenomena in the interaction between God and man fixed into the calendar year that operates with this concept of God sending and hopefully man responding as opposed to man sending and God responding, what would that be? Our commentaries tell us it's Shabbos. Because the nature of Shabbos and the nature of the, the holiness that is within Shabbos is way beyond what man could ever create through his initiation. The Shabbos has an atmosphere in it that's Isaruta Duliela. And this is the reason, by the way, why if one looks in the Torah at the description of Shabbos, there are a number of places that Pesach is referred to, not Shabbos, excuse me, that Pesach is referred to as what? As Shabbos. When the Torah talks about starting to count the Omer the day after Pesach, after the first night of Pesach, how does the Torah say it? The Torah says, Mimachras HaShabbos. The day after Shabbos, start counting the Omer, which means the day after Pesach. Well, if you meant Pesach, say Pesach. Why are you saying Shabbos? The reason being because the system of Pesach is identical to the system of Shabbos. It's Aruta Deleyela, the awakening that begins in heaven, that sparks 
man to change. Now, why that is stressed in particular in regards to the counting of the Omer, everywhere else the Torah refers to Pesach as Pesach. It's only when it comes to, to the counting of the Omer that all of a sudden we change the word Pesach to Shabbos. And I'm not going to get into it tonight, but this created such a commotion in Jewish history that the word Pesach was referred to as Shabbos that it's, un, it's not for now. We'll talk about it when we have our class on the counting of the Omer. But there was a point that was being made. Appreciate Pesach as the awakening that it begins in heaven. Now, one could say to themselves, okay, if Pesach is identical to Shabbos and it's the awakening that begins in heaven, fine, so I don't have to do anything. I don't have to want anything. All I have to do is wait for that moment that I move into that period of time called Shabbos. I move into that period called Pesach and let it have its effect. You know, I could sit back, kick up my feet, sip, sip, sip whatever soft drink I like, and it's all going to work. Why? Because it's Isaruta Deliela. The commentaries say it's very true that the initiation starts in heaven. That's very true. But there's one thing that we do have to do. Not that we deserve it by doing that, but there's one thing that we have to do. We have to turn to it and say, this is what I've been looking, this is what I want. This is an experience, this is an experience that I value. This is something that I want. Okay? The idea, for instance, before the coming of Shabbos, before the coming of Shabbos, the mindset of the Jew is, I love Shabbos. I can't wait till Shabbos. I want to experience the awakening that is initiated by my partner in heaven called God. And there's this, okay, I'm, I, I want the experience. I want to feel it. I'm desperate to feel it. Have I done? Yeah, you want it. You're desperate to feel it. You haven't done anything to deserve it, but you want it. Okay? And that's important. So when we sit down to the Seder night, yes, it's a night in which the, the, uh, the energy is not going from us up. The energy is going from God down to us. That's the way it's going. God is sending it into this world. But there's one thing that we have to do. What we have to do is we have to say to ourselves, okay, I'm getting myself ready to receive it. You know, let's say a parent, a simplistic example, parent says, I'm about to give out candy. Okay, I'm about to give out candy to the children. Okay, everybody get ready. Okay, so if the children deserve it or not, but what does the child have to do? Open up your hands as wide as you can to be able to get in to them as much as you can. And that's what the mindset of the... He's making it available to us, okay? But after everything is said and done, we sit down with the attitude, I want to receive it. Whatever it is, I might not deserve it, but I want to receive it, I want to experience it, so then I can then move and grow from it. And that's really... And that's really the attitude that we have to take to the whole concept of order. What do I mean? The reason why there is such a specific order is because the, the significance of the order is that God is saying, I'm going to teach you what vessels, what vehicles, and in what order you should do the things so that you should be able to absorb this holiness. In other words, if the process starts from us, 
So every little move that I make, which is a positive move, will have a reciprocal uh, response on God's part. So what determines God's response? The nature of my move. But if I'm not in the mode of initiating the process, but I'm in the mode of receiving the process, so God is saying, I'll tell you how to receive. I want you to do certain mitzvot on this night. I want you to eat master. I want you to drink four cups of wine. I want you to eat marer. I want you to talk about the Seder. There are things that I want you to do, and I want you to keep to the order, because I'm telling you that in order to be able to spiritually receive the nature of the night, this is the way that it has to be done. This is the order that opens you up spiritually to be able to receive what's going on in the evening. This is most probably the reason why there's an attachment to the Seder that is universal in nature in spite of where a Jew is in terms of his Judaism. Because the nature of the night ha is that it has this chemistry of what God's sending to us undeserved. And because that's the nature of what the whole night is about, no Jew feels excluded from the Seder. No Jew feels that he doesn't belong in the Seder because it's, it's coming from God. Yes, undeserved. I didn't work for this particular level of the evening. And therefore, every Jew can relate to it. If the nature of the night would be, it's a night that man is striving to reach God and he's got to work into the proportion that he works, he's going to get there. If that's what the atmosphere of the night is all about, so the Jew that works can relate to the night. The Jew that doesn't work on that, on that kind of a goal has difficulty feeling comfortable with the evening. But being that the evening, being that the evening is an evening in which one said, God's saying, I want to release you from the captivity that you have placed upon yourself, I want to start the process of freedom, not you. I will start the process of drawing you out. So that's something that every Jew, if not on a conscious, but on a spiritually subconscious level, can relate to. And therefore, when we sit down and, and we start singing the order of the night, there are a whole group of concepts that come with that word order. Order is God is telling me how to keep my hands wide open to receive as much as I can. That's what the order of the night is. And when we start to start the night with Kadesh Urachas, we could shed that tear that God was good enough to give us an experience that gives us the strength to make the changes. Very often, if we won't have the experience, we don't have the strength to make a change. But the experience itself gives me the strength to attempt making a change. So the Kadesh Urachas is the beauty of what the night is all about. Kadesh and then Urachas. So we make Kiddush, okay, we make Kiddush, and then we wash our hands without a blessing, without a blessing, and after Urachas, we have Karpas. That's the third thing on the list in the Haggadah. Karpas takes place on page 7. What do we do? We take a vegetable, we take a vegetable, we dip it into... We dip it into salt water, and we're going to talk about all of the different things. We dip it into salt water, we make a blessing, bore priyadama, which is the blessing over a vegetable, and we eat it. Now, the truth of the matter is that karpas is a very, very mystical tradition within the Seder night.
What we know on the very simplest levels about Karpas is we know basically two things. One thing that we know, which is obvious in our literature, in our halachic literature, is that the purpose of doing this is to do things which are peculiar, to do things which are not the norm, in order to create an interest on the children's part to ask, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? You never do this on any other night. In fact, the famous four questions of the Seder night, one of the four questions is that on every other night we don't even dip once, and on this night we dip twice. What are the two dippings? The first dipping is the karpas, the vegetable in the salt water. The second one is later on when we take the myrrh, the bitter herbs, and we dip it in the charosas. We dip it into that mixture of apple, nuts, wine, which reminds us of the cement that we had to deal with in Egypt. It doesn't have to taste like cement, but it has to look a little bit like it. So what we know is, first of all, we know that it's in order to, to create an interest on the children's part. Children are a very, very important part of the Seder. Because, and it's not so much children as it is the transmission of what occurred when we left Egypt. The Seder night is the guarantee of that, the transmission of our early beginnings from one generation to the other. And that's the major function of the night, that transmission from one generation to the next. We also know that dipping is the way of kings. Dipping is certainly, in earlier times, was, was a, um, was, it signified luxury, it signified a certain amount of fancy. I dip something and I eat it. It's not eating a meal like any person eats a meal because he's hungry, a dipping kind of thing. Is, is more of a, um, an enjoyment type of eating as opposed to, and it signifies a sense or an atmosphere of freedom. These are the two things which are obvious in our literature about Karpas. The reality is that there are very deep Kabbalistic meanings to the Karpas, which I don't profess to, to, to know, certainly not to understand. But there is a very interesting thing that the Alshech, who is a commentary on the Chumash and on other sources, that's what he says about Karpas, which is a very interesting thing. Look on page 12. It'll help. If you look on page 12, if you look at Karpas, what do we have there? Let's split up the word Karpas. Do you see it on the bottom of page 12, close to the bottom of the page? Those four bold letters, Karpas. Okay, those four letters... Karpas. The first two letters, oh, excuse me, page 7. On the bottom there's a 12, that's what confused me. On the top you have a cuff and a resh. Okay? Now, if you spell out cuff as you, you pronounce it, okay, cuff spelled out is a cuff and a fey. If you spell it out the way it's pronounced, it's cuff. And if you spell out resh the way it's pronounced, it's rush. So what do these two words mean? Kaf, rush. Open up your palm, a kaf is a palm, rush to a, per, to, to a poor person. Kaf, rush, 
open up your hand to a poor person. Obviously, this is a symbolic meaning. Okay? Now, how does this fit into the Seder? How does it fit into the Seder? What's the concept that the karpas, if you break up the word, kafresh means open up your palm to a poor person. Like, how does that fit into the Seder? Well, let's go a little bit ahead, and we'll see the same theme coming up a little bit later. We're going to, for just a moment, we're going to skip yachatz. I'm going to come back to yachatz in a moment, which is the fourth, which is the fourth thing of the Seder, and I'm going to go to Magid, which is the beginning of telling the story. How do we open up Magid? How do we open up Magid, the telling of the story? We open up Magid with a very, very interesting invitation. Okay? We point to the, to the matzah, and we say, this is the bread of our affliction that we ate when we were in Egypt. Every person that is in need should come and sit down and eat with us. Every person that has to eat the Paschal lamb, which is, it was, should come and eat with us, which was a reference to the times that we had a temple. And then we finish it off and we say, today we are here, God willing, next year in Jerusalem. Today we are still servants and slaves in certain ways. God willing, next year we will be truly free. Here again, we come upon, we come upon the concept, we come upon the concept of the poor person. Karpas, kaf resh, open up your palm to the poor person. Very shortly afterwards, again, we come up with this idea, let's invite the poor people in. In fact, in Halacha, it says very clearly that a very, very big part of, of really doing the Seder the right way is to make sure that those that are in need are at your table. What's this all about? It's very simple. Because we explained before that the whole concept of the Seder night is receiving from God an undeserved gift. Isaruta Deliela. Receiving from God an undeserved gift. But we pointed out that even though it's an undeserved gift, but we have to do something to be able to receive it. That thing that we can do more than anything else to receive it is that we should relate to another individual in the way that we want God to relate to us. What do I mean? In other words, if I invite in the poor, if I invite in the destitute, okay, they didn't pay for the matzahs, they didn't pay for the chicken, they didn't pay for the wine, they didn't pay for anything, they don't deserve, they didn't earn a place, they didn't buy a ticket to my Seder, but what am I doing? I'm saying it doesn't matter if you paid for it or didn't pay for it. You need. And if you need and I have, I want to give to you. That's what it is. Now, if a Jew could stand at his Seder table and say to another, feel about another person at his table, you need and that's the basis for your receiving, so then God looks down at the person and says, if that's the way you relate to another person, I will relate to you that way also. I will look at you and I will say about you, do you need inspiration? Do you need encouragement? Do you need strength? Yes. Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? No. But if I can see that that's the way that you relate in this world, then in that sense you deserve that I should relate to you also in that way. So really the act of stucca, 
the act of giving oneself over to those that are in need right, really opens up a place in God's heart to give to us on the basis of what? That, that we need it. And therefore the whole spirit of the Seder night, and that's why, to, to invite in poor people and to feed poor people and to care for poor people is a mitzvah 365 days of the year. Well, how come it becomes a theme at the Seder? And if one looks in Jewish law, it says, make sure that you have aniyam at your table, make sure that you have poor people at your table at the Seder. Why? Because it's the theme of the evening. Give even though I don't necessarily deserve, but I am in need. And need is the basis of it. Need is the basis of it, is the basis of the whole energy of what's going on at the Seder. <coughs> now, let's go back. To the, I jumped ahead to Magid to bring across this point of inviting the people. Let's move up on the page, page 8, to Yachatz. Okay, now Yachatz is a very, very interesting thing. What do we do in Yachatz? Well, at the Seder, we have many different things on the table. One of the things that we have on the table at the Seder is three matzahs. Preferably at the Seder, they should be hand-baked matzahs, as opposed to machine matzahs. Machine matzahs are also good, but there definitely is a preference in Jewish law for hand-baked matzahs, at least for the Seder. Okay? Now, we have three of them. Three whole hand-baked matzahs. Our literature teaches us that each matzah is for another segment of the Jewish people. The top matzah is for the Kohen, the middle matzah is for the Levi, the bottom matzah is for the Yisrael. Essentially, the concept that's behind that is that on the night of the Seder, all Jews are the same. They're all there. Why are they all there? Because if the night would be on the, based on deserving, some deserve, some don't deserve. So they're not all there. But since this is a night that it starts from God, Isaruta Duliela, we are all God's children, and we're all invited to that table. So there's a matzvah for Kohen, there's a matzvah for Levi, and there's a matzvah for Yisrael. So there are three matzos. And as we go through the Seder, I'll explain what happens to each one. But for this point, the fourth thing that we do at the Seder is we take the middle matzah, the middle one, the Levi matzah, and we break it into two uneven parts. The, the larger part, the larger part is wrapped up, covered, and hidden away for a later part of the Seder. It's hidden away <coughs> as the Afikoman for Tzafun. In other words, it's hidden away, and this is another thing that keeps the children up because they steal the matzah, and then you, know, then you, you have to promise them the world until they tell you where it is, and obviously they're very excited about that, and that keeps them up. But the matzah is broken, so the larger part is hidden away and we'll eat it as the dessert of the meal right before we have grace after meal. And the smaller broken part is the part upon which we are going to say the story of our lives, the story of Jewish history, on that smaller broken part. And this is a very fascinating thing. And I'd like to share this with you because it's very beautiful. Biblically, we had a breaking of parts a yachatz in our history as well. When Esav left 
excuse me, when Yaakov left the house of his father-in-law, Lavan, and had to confront his brother that wanted to murder him for having stolen the brachos, he was very concerned that Esau would massacre his family in hatred. So what did Yaakov do? Yaakov did various things. He prayed, he prepared a, a present of appeasement, and he also prepared for war. He also prepared for, for confrontation with Esau. And one of the things that he did was he broke his camp in half. He broke his camp in half, and the Torah tells us at the beginning of Parshat Vayishlach, Vayachat Setsa'am, he broke the camp in half with the rationale that if Esau will engage one camp, that will at least give the other camp a way of surviving. Because even if Esau will be successful with one camp, the other camp will have been taken away, and they'll survive on that by having been split instead of losing all at once. So the commentaries say a very, very beautiful thing. The commentaries say that symbolically the breaking of the camp within the human being refers to two parts of the human being. The person is a physical encampment and a person is also a spiritual encampment. There are two parts. He has every person is in, engulfed with physical and with spiritual. He has two camps. And what Yaakov said was, I'm going to break the two camps in half and even if the enemy will be successful at destroying one, he will never be able to destroy the other. What was he referring to? So our commentaries say that Yaakov understood in prophetic vision that no matter what the rest of the world tries to do to the Jew, no matter what he tries to do to the Jew, the most that will ever be successful at is our physical presence. But our neshama, the encampment of our souls, can never be taken away from us. That can't be taken away from us. Even if Esau will come and hurt and try to destroy the camp, but there is one camp that will survive it. A perfect demonstration of this, and I don't mean to become morbid, but a perfect demonstration of this was, if any of you have ever re read Those That Never Yielded, or any books of that nature of the Holocaust, they you know that this enraged the Nazi more than anything else. That in spite of everything that they attempted to do, one thing they couldn't destroy. They couldn't destroy that Machna HaNishar. The soul of, of Klal Yisrael they weren't able to destroy. And that's why history has recorded for us that there were Jews that danced in a circle in a gas chamber to Shema Yisrael. And history can record for us that moments before a woman and, a, and a, an infant were to be put to death, the mother asks the Nazi soldier for a knife to perform bris milah on the child with the statement that I want to give my child back to you the way that you want the child with bris milah. What do all those stories, what do all those stories communicate? 
אם יבוא יעשה ולמחנו היחס ויקהו והיה מחנה הנשאר לפלייטה. Now, this is very significant because we break the maths into two parts. The bigger one is hidden away. The bigger part of the maths is hidden away. What are we saying by that? What we are saying by that is <coughs> that even though we can't see it, it's hidden from us, we will come to realize that the biggest part of what we are can never be destroyed. Right now, in what we're going through in history, we begin to wonder if we'll survive it all. It's tough one. It's very hidden. We don't have a way of understanding it. But it's the bigger part. The smaller, broken part is what we say the story of Jewish history over. Yes, we're going through this, we're going through pogroms, and we're going through punishment, and we're going through many, many different things. But by taking the bigger part, covering it up, for our later part, what we are saying is that we believe that the bigger, better, and greater part is wrapped up. We don't understand where it is and when is it going to show itself, but it's going to come. And that's why the Yachatz is a tremendous statement before we begin the Magid that though we find ourselves in a situation that makes it difficult to celebrate freedom, we are doing that act of emunah, that act of faith, in saying that we believe that the greater portion of what we are all about is tzafun. And there will come a time that we will eat that dessert. There will come a time that we will, we will eat that, that part. <coughs> now, continuing on page 8, we begin Magid. What is Magid? Okay? The Passover story. That's not really what Magid is. What Magid is, is telling the story of Pesach. In other words, if a person would ask, what am I required to do by biblical obligation on the night of Passover? By biblical obligation, a person is required to do two things on the night of Passover. One of them, three, one of them is Kiddush, which is not unique to Passover. It's, it's on any holiday. Kiddush is one. Eating of matzah is a biblical command on the first night of Passover. And then to tell the story of our going out of Egypt. Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. We have to tell the story. We have to speak about the story. We have to explain the story. Now let me... Let me, uh, let me explain a couple of words here. Sipur. Most people define the word Sipur as storytelling. You tell a story, you're telling a Sipur. But our commentaries explain to us that the word Sipur really comes from the word Sapir, which is a sapphire which is a conceptually means to make something brilliant, to make something shine. The function of talking, the function of relating a story, is in order to make something that even though I might know it until I talk about it, it doesn't shine. It doesn't have a brilliance. It doesn't give off something. But if I talk about it, I talk it up, I elaborate it, I get into it, I become involved in it, it's Sipur. 
I, I, am, I am giving it a brilliance. Le saper. Magid, which is another way of saying to tell a story, really comes from the word gid, which refers to the ability to draw something and to attract through something. For instance, it says by the giving of Torah, it says, Kosomar lebeis Yaakov, v'sagid lebnei Yisrael. So, so one interpretation is that you tell them things that are as strong as veins, gidim. Another interpretation is that it's Moshech Osam, that it draws them. It has that pulling force that the Gidim have the tenacity to pull, that veins have to pull. In any case, the, again, the function is that we want to say something that brilliantly brings across a point, but it's also for the function of drawing the heart of the person. This is why our Madrashic literature, what is it called? It's called Agada because it draws the heart. So what we want to do is we want to draw the heart by brilliantly relating the story. Now, what are we really doing? What are we really doing? So let's try to start developing this idea. One of the names that Pesach has is Pesach. It's Mancheruseinu, and so on and so forth. Another One of the names that Pesach has is Pesach. Now, most of you are familiar that the, the holiday of Passover is called Pesach based upon the verse Yisrael, that on the night of Passover when God punished the firstborn he jumped over the houses of the Jews within which firstborns were and he jumped over those houses so Pesach comes from the language of jumping over he skipped the houses that belonged Jewish people. That's one interpretation. The Zohar HaKadosh, again the first author to expose our Kabbalistic literature says that the word Pesach comes from two words Peh, which means mouth, Sach begins to speak and the Zohar goes on to explain the Zohar goes on to explain that while we were in Egypt, Hadibur Haya Begalus, our ability to communicate was in, in exile. And with our freedom from Egypt, we gained the ability to communicate. That's all the Zohar says. Now, I'd like to explain what the Zohar means. When a person has an inability to communicate, a lot of things are really locked up inside of the person because the person can feel a lot of different feelings but if he hasn't yet developed the ability to communicate it means that he doesn't have the power of crystallizing his thoughts bringing together his feelings and creating that symphony called communication that brings it to the surface but it's not only a question, it's all in here, but I don't know how to say it. If I don't know how to say it, there's something missing in there too. Because anybody knows that if you're thinking about an idea or a feeling, very often when you're pressed to express it, 
Yes, I know that in romantic literature we say no words can express, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is that when a person starts to speak and tries to communicate ideas, he's bringing to bear all of his emotion, all of his feeling, all of his thinking to try to create an idea. And what the speech, the effort of communicating does is that it actually draws out and it brings out from the depths of one's heart what's really there. The way that our literature refers to it is it's like you're letting down a bucket to bring up waters from a very deep place. So communication is not just it's all there and it's just a question of letting it out. It's not only a question of letting it out, but by letting it out, it becomes alive for the person that says it. Very often you read a book and there's an interesting idea. No, you're not so terribly excited. It's interesting. It means something to me. It touches me. But if you can communicate it, if you can, if you can dramatically live it, express it and communicate it, all of a sudden it takes on a whole new life. This is what the Zohar is talking about. When the Jew was in Egypt, there was a lot inside of him that couldn't express itself. It couldn't come out. It wasn't alive. But when the, when the Jew became meritorious of freedom, he, he gained his freedom on that night. With his gaining freedom on that night, what's a sign of freedom? What is an expression of freedom? The ability to communicate. The ability to, let, to have one's feelings come out from those deep places. So what we do on the night of the Seder is a process of freedom. Bring out your feelings even if they're obvious and apparent to you. Bring them out. Become involved. Relive it by speaking about it. Talk about it. Ask about it. Answer about it.